Welcome to the Infinite Worlds Podcast. Yo kids, this is Nick the Tooth, and today I am joined by my co-host and publisher of the Infinite Worlds magazine, Winston Ward. Hey, what's up, Nick? How you doing, dude? Dude, so good, so good. Still uh, working on the van, very close to being done. Oh, I can't pumped. wait. I can't wait to see the pictures. Oh, it's getting there, bro. It's getting there. But you know what I'm really stoked for is that we're going to talk about one of my favorite books of all time today. Last week, we uh, prefaced Vonnegut's life, and today we are going to talk about his greatest work, Slaughterhouse-Five. That's one of my favorite books. A huge influence on me. Um, read it probably three or four times. Um, I'm really, really excited to talk about this, especially if uh, you... If you haven't, go back and listen to the last episode so you get a you know a little bit of a primer about Vonnegut before you listen to this episode. All right, all right. Let's just jump right into it, bro. Sounds good, man. All right. And makes the scene as a science fiction writer because Player Piano is a uh, dystopian science fiction novel as well. What's and that one about? I haven't read that. Just just it's elevator about- pitch. It's about the automation of industry and how uh, people are replaced during that uh, 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 process. And how no, that wasn't prescient. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. And you know, a lot of it, it, it got a lot of comparison to Brave New World and that kind of thing. But it's like yeah. it's like Vonnegut style. It's you know, it's glib and kind of funny. Uh, and it, it still had a lot of his. It didn't. One thing that he developed over time was being able to condense his writing so that you'd only a paragraph would be two or three sentences. Yeah. And and that's not how he started writing. His paragraphs were bulkier and longer, and he was a little bit more verbose early on. You just read Silence, Sirens of Titan pretty recently. So, you mm-hmm. know, earlier on, you know, he was a little wordier. Uh, but you can it's, still it's see part of it's part of any kind of an art to be able mm-hmm. to start to understand where you can hack limbs away and make that tree really, really lean. It's hard. It's not okay. easy. It's it's harder to write lean than it is to write. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I mean, that's why Hemingway is so famous for the six word short story. Yeah. Um, you know, My and favorite. like and uh, I for those who are unfamiliar with the six word short story, there's this old story that uh, Ernest Hemingway was challenged to write the world's shortest tragedy. And he wrote a six word story and it goes baby sh- shoes for sale, never worn, which, you know, all that, that implies. Uh, but Vonnegut in many ways took after that school of writing where he could oh, yeah. condense these tragedies and everything into these little, these little like uh, nuggets. Um, okay. So player piano gets, uh, uh, published but then he starts to go through financial even though he's published this novel he starts to go through financial hardships because he gets kind of pigeonholed as being a science fiction writer and even when your science fiction book is published and it sells fairly well it only sells well compared to science fiction books you know what i mean um yeah science fiction was still considered uh and sort of an outs outlying genre uh even though in the early fifties, there was a huge boom for it. It was still not mainstream fiction. Yeah. Um, so even though he has the book published and he's still selling short stories here and there, 
he's not doing that great financially. He's got kids. Um, he buys into a Saab dealership and works at a Saab dealership, but then the Saab dealership goes bankrupt. So that's oh. the, like, so that's what his back is against. Um, then in 1958, right after he's published, or either right after, or right before he's published Sirens of Titan, his sister dies of cancer two days after her husband was killed in a train accident and they leave four children. <clears throat> so and, and Vonnegut and his wife adopt three of those children. Um, the ones that the are poor. basically, yeah, no kidding. Uh, and the, the fourth child ends up with other relatives cause it's like an infant at this point. Uh, oh, okay. they're, they, they just have too much on their plate to take care of an infant, but they ad- adopt the three children that are old enough to dress and bathe themselves. Um, so now they have a house with six children in it, I think, uh, or six, six, six or seven children at this point. And Vonnegut yeah. is making almost no money. Uh, and the, the side hustle he had tried failed, but he keeps at it. He keeps trying to publish books. He publishes Sirens of Titan. He publishes Mother Night, which is his first non, uh, uh, science fiction novel and that's about a american soldier who ends up through twists and turns being a uh officer of propaganda for the nazi army and that character later appears in uh slaughterhouse five um he keeps writing he keeps writing and then finally he publishes In 1969, he finally gets the monkey on his back that's been around the whole time, and he publishes uh, Slaughterhouse, which, as we've said, was his magnum opus, and it really uncorked a lot of the things that he had been holding inside. He talks a lot about how frustrating it was. In fact, if you've read Slaughterhouse-Five, the early pages of the novel talk about, is sort of a, a, a testimonial by the author like the forward is him describing the effort it took for him to get Slaughterhouse Five written. Uh, about how I had to go visit an old war buddy and uh, to try to like rehash some of these things that had happened to him so that he could get it all out. But then it's a huge, massive mainstream success because even though it's about World War II, which would happened twenty uh, something years before this, uh it fits into the time in which it's published because the anti-war agenda of the left is really uh, like rolling hard against Vietnam. This is 1969. The hippie movement is in full force. And basically Vonnegut gets adopted by the hippie movement as uh, a spokesperson. And he starts doing college tours, uh, starts appearing on television shows. He's even in a couple of movies and he becomes a celebrity. And he that's how he spends the rest of his life as a writer because of Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. And, Crazy. Uh, yeah, that's more or less the uh, the shorthand version of the biography of Kurt Vonnegut there. So, Well, and it's, it's, it's cool. I'm glad to know a lot of that because I didn't realize, you know, that uh, how his struggles as a writer, especially having to adopt those kids. Oh, my mm-hmm, gosh. Mm-hmm. You talk about like, hey, it's already difficult. Well, how about this? I'm going to throw this on your plate. But, uh, but it's cool. And, and, and you're right. The bio is so important because Slaughterhouse-Five basically takes up 
and it, he's talking about the book is about his experience in Germany at right. the Battle of the Bulge. And so his character in Slaughterhouse Five is Billy Pilgrim, right. and he is drafted into. I don't remember if he's drafted or if he's enlisted, but he is a like chaplain's assistant in right. uh, in the army, and he goes to the Battle of the Bulge, and he is completely out of his element. You want yeah. to talk about totally a fish clueless. out of water? totally clueless has no business as any kind of a a soldier and uh, just some gawky kid who just is you know just walking around and he gets um he gets captured in uh in the battle of the bulge but one of the things that i like loved about the book was he is all of a sudden you're reading about world war ii and right away, the book starts with this weird, do you remember that first chapter? It's almost like written in the first person where he's talking about his experience of wanting to write about World War II mm-hmm. as, as himself and talks mm-hmm. about how he gets chided by a uh, one of, I think it's his friend's wife. Who it's says, his friend's wife, you, yep. Yeah, are you going to go ahead and make this a hero story where you're going to glorify war and all that? And kind of calls him out, and he puts that as the first chapter. Mm-hmm. And um, and it goes right into there, and he does not glorify anything. Still there? Yeah, can you hear me? Nick? Hold on. Yeah, no, can yeah, you hear me? Yep. Okay. I don't know what yeah. happened. Um, anyways, so he is, you know, he is over there. He gets captured, and... All of a sudden, he gets like unstuck in time, and the and the narration where you're dealing with this World War II thing, all of a sudden, it just starts pulling out of the story. And at first, it's a little jarring, but then you start to realize that he's flipping back and forth between his old life and his future life. And right. then, and it's hard for me to talk about the story in regards to like this linear thing that happens because you almost have to look at it. I'll get to the science fiction part right now because again, it's hard to say, okay, this is how the story unfolds, but he is not only a, in an older person after the war in his like forties with a family and his wife, but he's also during the narration, it's going from chapter to chapter. He's in the war, but then mm-hmm. he talks about when he gets abducted by these aliens, the Trophimadorians, right. right? And what we learn about the Trophimadorians are that they view time from this four dimensional perspective in which they see everything from front to back. So they will look at you, they can see your entire life. And what's so interesting about this is, you know, I really wonder if he had started learning about physics and how physicists say, listen, time may only be a and, and, and that we were talking about that series devs and the series devs deals with this exactly where from a physics perspective, Time may only be a construct of our consciousness. And the reality is everything may have already happened. And that's such a crazy concept because we, it's almost like if we could see the world in infrared, we would, we would be shocked, but the, it doesn't mean that those wavelengths aren't there. It's just that we don't see them that way. 
And that's kind of how these aliens saw the world. Like he couldn't understand it first. Like, wait a minute, everything has already happened. Um, And it brings up uh, like really interesting philosophical questions of free will. Like, do we even have free will? And what's so interesting... Go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to say, in many respects, I think that is like the most important theme of Vonnegut's whole writing career is the theme of free will. Yes, yes. And, And I think that that is because when, you know, you have to understand that when... So after he is captured, okay, during the uh, Battle of the Bulge, his character, Billy Pilgrim, is forced to go on like this brutal march, okay, mm-hmm. almost like a death march, in which they end up walking to, you know, it's cold. He's They're forcing him to wear like these wooden clogs, and he's got blisters on his feet, and it's just a complete freaking nightmare. And... um and so he is marched into the city of Dresden, which everyone tells first him. First he's put on a train, then marched. Yes. To yeah, first oh they put him on gosh, a train. Oh my gosh, the train, oh. that's right. Oh. So it's basically the experience of, of, of like Holocaust survivors or Holocaust yes. prisoners. Right. And yeah, he's put on this train and people are dying. And this is when we first learn, you know, every time that he describes a death in the book, he goes, so it goes. So it goes, so it goes. And it's, it's really, if you look at what he's doing, which was so genius, it's like he, his psyche has been assaulted by so much brutality and the horrors of war that the only way that his brain can deal with it is just to detach, right? It's like trauma. He's experienced trauma and he's, this is just a trauma reaction where he's flipping backwards and forwards into time, questioning whether any of this is even real. Does he have free will? And oh, another person died. So it goes. Um, what, okay. So, uh, we talked earlier about that. I have that, that phrase tattooed on my wrist and, um, growing up, I experienced a fair amount of death. My mother had a prolonged battle with cancer that she lost when I was 16. Um, all, all of my grandparents died around that time. I had an aunt that died around that time. Uh, you know, these are all people that I knew like on the daily, uh, and it, definitely messed with my psyche an awful lot. And I went, I spent, I would say at least the next 10 years after my life, after that happened with pretty bad depression. Like I made all, like I drank heavily. I, uh, just made a ton of bad decisions. I, um, I was a unhappy person because I couldn't really deal with any of this stuff. I couldn't deal with my fear, my just awful fear of death and fear of just considering death. Um, yeah. Uh, and then at some point I, you know, I think it was because of this book or at least in part because of this book that I started to come to terms with the idea of death as just being part of life as just being the next phase of life. The, it, all it is, is the thing we don't know yet, you know, and how every day is something we don't know. Every time we open our eyes for the first time in the morning, we are preparing to experience something we have yet to experience. Um, and I was able to kind of use some of that that I learned from Kurt Vonnegut uh, to help kind of throw off the shackles of depression. And over time, over years, I've come to terms with that a lot better. And it wasn't just Vonnegut. It was lots of other things, lots of other uh, uh, influences. But in many ways, Kurt Vonnegut helped me to get over my depression. Um, 
and to kind of like give me the perspective I needed to move forward in life uh, in a productive way with or without free will. And that's the thing to me about free will is that whether or not we have free will, that itself is an illusion because we're going to do whatever we're going to do regardless of whether or not it was predestined regardless of whether you know whatever whatever any decision we make to change it could have also been predetermined so the best thing to do in my opinion is just do what you're going to do anyway because you know that's just going to be the way it goes so it goes so it goes Dude, you're um, going to love devs, man. Oh, my gosh. You're going to uh, freaking lose your mind. So cool. So you touched cool. on something I think really important about Vonnegut's writing just now, uh, about the so it goes thing, about him pointing out about the death and the uh, Trophimidorians and the being unstuck in time, is that one thing that I noticed about having read, I think I've read eight of Vonnegut's novels so far, Uh is that he does this thing where uh, more than any other writer I know of is that he uses, I don't want to use the word gimmicks, but maybe I'll say like, like a tool, but every book I've read of his has some sort of way that he's able to insert these little small uh, ideas, like sometimes half formed ideas into the conversation uh, like kind of heavily philosophical ideas into the conversation. Uh, like in Slaughterhouse Five, he's able to do it both with Billy Pilgrim being unstuck in time and with the Tralfamadorians having such a completely different perspective than humankind that he's able to drop their perspective into the story. Um, and, and he we, uses little, little, like little twerky thing, quirky things that he does, like little like tools to kind of mm -hmm. trigger this in your brain. Yeah, the, maybe right? tools is a better word than gimmick because the, every novel he does has at least one of these tools in it. We talked about you like, said you like Cat. a so it goes, right? Yeah, like a so it goes. Cat's Cradle had uh, Baconanism, the religion of Baconanism, and all of the different little uh, excerpts from the book of Baconanism offered these sort of philosophical punches here and there. Um, we talked uh, about the okay, okay, hold on, hold on, right now, just hit me. The successor to uh, Vonnegut and and Slaughterhouse Five and Cat's Cradle, okay. Chuck Palahniuk, Fight Club, okay, yeah, studied studied uh, minimalism under um, uh, under the school of Gordon Lish and uses that think about it think about fight club he did it mm -hmm. exactly like vonnegut rule number one you don't talk about fight club rule number two and right. he uses the same type of tools where he's repeating things and he's even written essays about it where he talks about listen these are little things that i bring up again and it triggers it in your brain and it brings it all right back to you um he does it again and okay we we mentioned uh the sirens of titan and the sirens of titan uh, Malachi, uh, the, actually it's Rumford, uh, Niles Winston Rumford, the, uh, the millionaire is basically, uh, removes free will from, uh, Malachi by, uh, telling him, these are the things that are going to happen to you. You're going to go to Mars. Then you're going to go to Mercury. Then you're going to come back to earth. Then you're going to, uh, end up on Titan. And he tells him all that stuff up front and Malachi attempts to 
say, I'm not going to do that. He tries everything in his power to not let to, so that that doesn't happen. And in the end, it all happens exactly how uh, that character says it's going to happen. Wow. Another one uh, while I'm thinking about it uh, is Galapagos in the book Galapagos. Uh, the book is written by somebody who uh, I'll come back to this in a second, but the book is written by somebody a million years in the future writing about stuff that happened a million years in the past. So it's all written in this really, really large past tense so that the fate of the characters in the story is known well in advance. In fact, in that book, he does this thing where after a while, he puts an asterisk next to the name of a character who is going to die in the next few pages. No way. Yeah, right. That's Even, so crazy. Yeah, so when you're reading, <laughs> you'll be reading the story, and then all of a sudden, the character's name will appear with an asterisk next to it, and you're like, oh, they're going to die. And, oh, uh, d- does he so, explain it, or do you he have does, to does, he explain, it he, explain, he explains it in the book, or maybe he does it, at the, he might do it at the very beginning of the book, but it's explained. You know what's going on. Um, wow. It's been a while since I've read that one. Um, but again, it removes the free will from the characters because their fate is already determined in advance. Um, so dope and he does that he does this is this is definitely sort of like a thing he does but the most obvious example of this and this is the one subject i really thought was important to get in here on this podcast uh is he has one tool that does this in all of his books not all of them but many of his books and that's the writer kilgore trout the the fi- the fictional character that appears in tons of different uh, Vonnegut stuff is, um, I've got a little bio for him as well. Okay, so Kilgore Trout is a fictional author that exists in Kurt Vonnegut's writings, and he is a failed science fiction writer who's written tons of work, but exists completely out of the mainstream. Is pretty much wholly ignored by everybody, but the most fanatical fans. So he's basically a failure as a writer. And okay. So uh, real quick, let me give you a little backstory about Kurt Vonnegut, about Kilgore Trout. Okay. okay so, so while, uh, uh, Vonnegut's family was living in Cape Cod and he was running this sob dealership, the science fiction writer, Theodore Sturgeon moved to Cape Cod or perhaps it was, uh, yeah, he moved to Cape Cod and he be- befriends Kurt Vonnegut because Kurt Vonnegut had just recently published Player Piano. This was his only novel. It was a science fiction novel. So Vonnegut, I mean, uh, sorry, Sturgeon thought that Vonnegut was just another science fiction writer like himself. And at this time, Kurt, or, uh, Theodore Sturgeon was f- far and away the more successful of the two writers. Sturgeon had uh, ri- been writing for maybe two decades at this point. And at the time of their meeting, Sturgeon was the, uh, how did they put it? The most anthologized science fiction writer in history, meaning that at that point, his writing had appeared in more anthologies than any other writer ever before him. Um, So he was a very successful science fiction writer. And I'm definitely emphasizing the word science fiction here because (laughs) even as a successful science fiction writer at this point in history, he still was never taken seriously by critics. And it's a damn shame because I've read several uh, Theodore Sturgeon books and he was a damn awesome writer. Listeners, go read More Than Human by Theodore Sturgeon. It is one of the coolest 
most unique science fiction books I've ever read, and it is written beautifully. It is an awesome, awesome book. Highly recommend that. It's definitely the prototype for like the X-Men and uh, even Umbrella Academy and lots of other things like that, but nothing like those things. So don't, it's not like some superhero thing or anything, but it's definitely prototypical of a lot of that stuff and is just a beautiful, beautiful work of art. That's um, dope. And he also wrote a, no, a number of other things, uh, Venus Plus X, which is another really cool novel, more of straightforward sci-fi, but super cool novel, uh, and a ton of episodes of Star Trek and a bunch of other TV shows. And, he, you know, he was a... In, in that world was a pretty recognizable figure. But even with that, he was still not that successful because he was still having to grind to write. And the meeting of Vonnegut and Sturgeon is sort of an intersection in both of their careers because at the time, Vonnegut's on his way up. Vonnegut, his career only had an upward trajectory, <laughs> really. Yeah. Like he, he just started successful and just kept being more successful. Even though he so, you know, had some financial troubles at the beginning, he continued to be published the whole time and basically published as soon as he wrote a novel throughout his career. Um, after meeting Vonnegut, Sturgeon's writing career sort of uh, uh, tapered off. And he wrote a few more and he wrote some TV. He wrote Star Trek and some TV shows after that. But more or less, he uh, just kind of didn't really publish any novels after that. So Kilgore Trout is this character based very loosely on Theodore Sturgeon, is a frustrated, failed science fiction writer. And the way Vonnegut used him as a tool uh, or a gimmick, or like we discussed these other things that he would do in his writing, is by spelling out the plots of Trout's books in little like elevator pitch snippets. Uh, and the subject of the book would... Uh, cover some sort of philosophical quandary that uh, he could then like, you know, explore without actually having to write the whole book that explored that or go deep into it. You just knew that you just supposed that this character Kilgore Trout had gone in and done all of this philosophical research to create this argument. Um. And it's kind of like he's basically a gimmick being used by uh, Vonnegut for the purpose of, you know, exploring these concepts that Vonnegut comes across. Vonnegut even said, you know, <clears throat> Trout supposedly wrote 50 novels and that's 50 novels that Vonnegut got to write without ever having to write. Yeah, it's so cool. It's such a cool trick to be able to use it like a narrative it's really like a narrative device it's absolutely say, okay is. narrative device to get in to kind of download information for the reader where it doesn't just feel like it's you know the where he's really piling on right so, absolutely yeah, yeah it's genius man and he he did it with all these different methods too uh like we said all the different religions and uh what have you and all the different books but it's really uh, Trout, where he was able to exercise the most of these ideas. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, Theodore Sturgeon didn't love the idea, even though they were friends and they, they remained friendly. He did not love the idea of being compared or having Trout based on him because Trout is a failure. And Theodore Sturgeon, although, you know, I'm talking about him on a podcast 70 years later, but 
you know, at the time in his life, he was struggling. He was a struggling writer. Yeah. And, you know, was considered sort of insignificant in the writing world because he exclusively wrote science fiction stories. And it was Isn't that crazy. Gosh. Well, um, and that's what Vonnegut did. I think personally, Vonnegut is the first author to actually hit the mainstream through science fiction. Yeah. And, 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 and especially in in regards to, you know, we did have, like you said, Aldous Huxley with Brave mm-hmm. New World, and then mm-hmm. you had George Orwell with 1984. Mm-hmm. But those were one-offs. Totally. Those were one-off books. So And even, even those books are sort of heralded as triumphs of science fiction. You know what I mean? And dire warnings of the future and that kind of thing. Uh, and even though, you know, you still learn about those, the average person sitting at home in their apartment probably wasn't going to just read at the time, wasn't going to read 1984 just for entertainment, like not somebody who wasn't already interested in science fiction. The reason those books uh, are part of our psyche is because, you know, they were so important. They proved to be so important that they were, they they became curriculum. Uh, You know, like you true. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're expected to learn about those books because, you know, of how they reflected society. Uh, but what Vonnegut did was made science fiction totally accessible to regular readers. And of course, you know, he was a liberal. So and, you know, he was doing the college circuit, the the university circuit and was a big anti-war guy. So, you know, his readers skewed left for sure, but they weren't all freaks you know they weren't all uh hippy dippy college sci-fi pothead burnout types you know he had tons and tons and tons of regular regular readers yeah yeah and and, you know his ability to do that i think is really and maintain a successful career writing in that style for years and years and years and years and years after this is i really the thing that sets him apart the most uh of science fiction writers and I think, you know, our listeners, Vonnegut might be a strange choice for the first writer that we've really talked about. And, you know, we did an episode about Philip K. Dick, uh, sort of. It was more about Blade Runner than it was about Philip K. Dick. But we did touch on Philip K. Dick's life a lot. And, you know, he has snuck into the mainstream because the mainstream has gotten so much more science fiction. Yeah. But but Vonnegut was doing it before he was. And uh, in a more mainstream way, like I said, man, like just regular old housewives, regular old uh, mailmen and everything would read his books and he would appear on late night TV shows. And that's something that Philip K. Dick never did. You know, I mean, he wasn't uh, regular old people weren't trying to get their picture taken with Philip K. Dick. You know, only no, he, his, his, his writing is Vonnegut's writing is so accessible that compared to Philip K. Dick, it's not even comparable. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's the reality, and that he was able to do that. Oh, so anyways, let me let me go back. So after the war, Billy ends up in a hospital for PTSD under right. psychiatric care, and there is where he learns about uh, Kilgore Trout and mm-hmm. starts learning about the. His, he ends up getting married. He has a daughter. Um, and on his daughter's wedding night, he is captured 
by an alien spaceship and this is where everything starts to get really but it's it's sci-fi but it's like this funny like like Vonnegut had this way of just being like kind of just tongue-in-cheek with everything right. and I think that is so hard to pull off Absolutely. you know but and it's done in a very serious way because you start to realize oh shit man this is, is this real is it for the characters is this real is this not real or is this just a function of his ptsd because if it's real it's like yeah that's really cool if it's not real it's very serious the guy's Absolutely. got ptsd right well uh it's i've read the book a couple of times now and i take the literal interpretation that the character really is absolutely and while it's easy to see how it could be uh, uh, seen as a PTSD and like uh, uh, having uh, hallucinations or uh, 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 what's the word I'm hunting for uh, fantasies about these things. But in the end, the character uh, is killed in the fashion in which he's, you know, predetermined to be killed. He knows about how and when he's going to die. Yeah. For every moment of his life after coming on. And that's the reason the child Femidorians come to him in the first place is because he's somehow become unstuck in time. The child Femidorians don't unstick him in time. They don't do the unsticking. They just see that there's a human who potentially can see the universe more like they're able to see the universe yeah. Because of, because of their ability to see time as uh, like crystallized, uh, time as one thing, like an object observable all at once. Um, well, I think I think that he pulls off the unreliable narrator so well mm-hmm. that you're left with this like, is it real or is it not real? Is it? Right. I'm like you. I'm like. I want to see it as real. I think that's rad, especially because when they capture him, they put him in a like a geodesic dome. And so where he's like in a zoo and so where the Trophimidorians can come and watch his behavior. So he's living in there and they bring him a mate. She is a porn star. And so Montana, what is her name? Montana Wildhack. Yeah, Montana Wildhack. And so they fall in love. They have a kid, and uh, and then all of a sudden he goes back in in the past, and he's back in uh, he's back in World War II. And so it does like this back and forth, and all this shit. And oh my gosh, it's you know what's so funny? Freaking good. Yeah, Go ahead. Really funny is I accidentally mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but it so relates now that I think about it. Is Doctor Manhattan that this exactly what's happening? to uh billy pilgrim happens to dr manhattan he also gets on time it's the same thing he like there's that scene in the watchman where he's like it's 1961 i'm doing this i'm right here it's 1994 i'm on the surface of mars but they're all happening simultaneously to him and that is very much what's happening to billy pilgrim uh so it's really funny actually now that you mention it uh that it kind of plays out that way that there is There's no a- way that Alan Moore did not read Slaughterhouse Five and was <laughs> yeah, not influenced yeah, by Vonnegut. Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely. No way. Yeah, um, it's so and, rad. And like, it's Doctor Manhattan trying to explain the way he sees things to the people around him is like the narrator trying to it's explain exactly it. the the uh, of uh, Slaughterhouse trying to explain 
how the Tralfamadorians see time. There's a really great passage in Slaughterhouse where the Tralfamadorians explain to Billy his limited perspective. They say, imagine that you're sat on a, a rail car on a train strapped to a chair where you can't move your arms or legs or head. And one eye is blindfolded and the other eye is affixed to a six foot long tube that's about an inch wide. And you can only see what's at the far end of that tube out of one eye and the train's moving. So that's yeah, your per- perception that's so of reality compared to ours, which is just like seeing the train. Their reality is like seeing the train car from the outside, like as it passes them by. Yeah. You know, and uh, I always thought that was a really such a great visual for um, trying to explain this concept of time as a uh, relative uh, 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 phenomenon, something that is experienced differently based on your perception. Well, I think that's amazing. And, and what's cool in the book is that after, you know, towards the end of his life, he goes on radio, he goes on the radio and he starts telling people that this is really what reality is, right? Is that we think you think, you know, reality and he's like, people start like kind of freaking out. His daughter who's taking care of him is like, you're going crazy. I need to have you put in a mental hospital mm-hmm. again. And the book ends up with him giving a speech at a baseball stadium in which he tells people that he's going to die and they're kind of shocked. And he says, if you think death is a terrible thing, then you have not understood a word I've said. Mm. And then boom, he's shot and killed mm. by the guy that he knows is going to kill him from World War II. Yeah. The, the, so the guy who had a grudge against him during World War II for no reason for he really didn't even do anything. <laughs> and and this guy has a, grudge, <laughs> has a grudge against him from years and years and years before and finally hires somebody to go kill Billy. And, uh, it's what's really funny about that is the free will aspect of it. Like there's so much good, uh, conversation about free will in that because Billy himself knows what's going to happen, but he doesn't struggle to change it because he's got this heightened perspective. Yeah. However, yeah. The other guy whose name I cannot remember, uh, the, the, the other character who has him assassinated, uh, has complete will to change that. In fact, he spends years and years and years of his life forgot for he's forgotten all about it. Uh, and it shows that even with him moving on, not caring about it anymore, and then circling back around, his will was predetermined as well. Even Paul Lazaro. Paul Lazaro. That's his name. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah. yeah and Paul Lazaro's will had been predetermined since that moment that he decided to do that. Or even before that, even before he was ever even born. Dude, you know what it reminds me of? It's crazy that you're saying that, but it's, and I never flash back to things like this, but it reminds me of that passage, the biblical passage, when Jesus like for, is like, forgive them not, for they know not what they do. Mm. And it's like, whoa, man, what if like Jesus was one of those people who's like a Tralfamadorian, where he yeah, could dude. see everything and realized, you know what, just relax. Just yep. relax because you have no control over any of this anyways. So yeah, just Jesus chill. Is hang- Jesus is hanging up on the cross just going, so it goes. <laughs> <laughs> 
so morbid. But you know what? It's it's crazy because like we're laughing about something, and that's what was so. I think that's the greatest characteristic of Vonnegut's writing is that black humor, where you're mm-hmm. like, this dude is a hardcore freaking revolutionary, right, mm-hmm. against the system. And he is just, his mind, his psyche has been beset by the horrors of war and just is like, the only thing left is to laugh about it because there is nothing fucking else you can do because you can't stop it. You can't change it. Well, I think um, that's an attitude that I think a lot of us, and you know, that attitude is touched on with various religions uh, in various ways, you know, Buddhism, uh, obviously uh, Hinduism. Uh, talk a lot about this subject about how you know death being not not just inevitable as in it's something you have to fear but being inevitable in the same way the sun coming up the next morning is inevitable uh just being part of a cycle and uh you know how in order to have any sort of um transcendence in this life you have to accept that uh And, uh, you know, not, not, it's not forced on you. You're not forced to accept it. It's just accepting it the same way you accept breathing, you know, it's just, it's just a function of reality. And, um, you know, I think that change is a function of reality. It's almost like bringing it back to today, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, you have got to say the, the past is over and, and the, or the way things were, it's over. And we have to yeah. let that go and just be in the moment because we have no idea. We can't control things, you know? It's too big. Um, you know, every day is the end of the world because... Mm, I like that. You can, you know, it's the same philosophies. You can't cross the same river twice. You know what I mean? Because every, no matter what you do, tomorrow is going to be a different reality. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And we have to accept that our lives are going to end but reality itself will continue on and it just will be changed by us being here by us but not being here uh by even every day every day we're different yeah and uh, you know and that's some dime store philosophy for you guys you know uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's so relevant today because it's so easy to get caught up in the drama you know what i mean of what's happening it's like almost like we're living in a vonnegut story right now right you got the president telling you to inject bleach and (sighs) we're gonna get uv rays this is a dude who's at the pulpit who's the leader of the free world who yesterday said you know we're gonna we're looking at injecting bleach and also getting you if we bombard ourselves with uv rays not just through the skin but we're gonna be able to get them inside the body Dude, this is straight out of a Vonnegut book, man. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. Oh, my. So, Absolutely. It, you know, so it goes, right? So yeah. it goes. You just got to say so it goes. Well, that's the oh that's the, the most important quality of a science fiction writer is the prescience. And he had it in spades, man. He's just another oh one of those gosh. greats who could just see reality. Like, you know, he could see reality for what it was and when you can see for reality your reality for what it is it's a lot easier to kind of get an idea of the direction it's headed and you know and the cycles yeah. it takes and all that so it's fucking Man. crazy every day we say it can't get any crazier but dude this was a freaking rad podcast man we already went this was a really good one man. I had a lot I had a lot of fun with this one. Um, uh, hour 30. We might make this into two episodes, maybe. It's so good, man. It's so good. Yeah. Kind of. We'll talk about that after. But guys, uh, thank you all so much for listening to us talk about this. Um, 
I really hope yeah, we that love you guys, it, man. Oh, it's the, I mean, you, you keep us going. Obviously we couldn't do what would be the point of us just talking to ourselves. Um, yeah. it, it, you know, we could just be having conversation. We do just have conversations <laughs> by, by the way, you know what I mean? But th- yeah. the conversations have take on such a, um, a greater element when we're able to have conversations for the benefit of other people. Uh, we uncover new truths because of that. So thank you so much for being an audience or else we would be still, uh, you know, clueless to some of the truths that we feel like we're uncovering here. Um, Amen. And uh, yeah, that's awesome, bro. What, what are we going to do next time, man? At the end of uh, the second, if we release this in two, are we going to do devs next? What do you think? Well, if uh, we're going to do me, devs, let, I would it, love let, everybody to watch it. Well, let's put a pin in that because I haven't seen it yet. You know what I mean? So I don't okay. want to commit. I don't want to commit to it till I've seen it. We should. I think we should do another author, maybe okay. or something. Uh, that's my first instinct is to do a different author, maybe Ray Bradbury or uh, uh, perfect, uh, maybe or one one of the other you know he- heavy hitters of the industry. I'm not saying we're definitely going to do that, but uh, that's my first instinct. But it might be devs. I'll probably start watching it tonight. So we'll see. Rad, rad. Um, All right, guys. If you haven't read any Kurt Vonnegut books. They're really fun and easy to read. Go pick up a Kurt Vonnegut book and start reading it. Any any yeah. one of them, but I obviously the ones we've mentioned here are the the most recommended ones. Uh, don't read Breakfast of Champions until you've read a few of his other stories first, because he kind of like it, it kind of acts almost as like a sequel to his own writing. Um, but pretty much all of the other ones you could just pick up and read. Uh, yeah, especially uh, Slaughterhouse Five, Cats Cradle. Absolutely. Those those are freaking masterpieces. They're so I, cool. I, so I also fun. recommend uh, Sirens of Titan. I recommend uh, uh, Galapagos a lot. Uh, uh, Welcome to the Monkey House is a book of short stories. That's really great. Um, I'm trying to remember other ones off the top of my head, but there's so many. Um, All right. Also, All right. also, uh, real quick, uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, Nick is at Nick the Tooth. Um, I'm at Infinite Worlds Magazine. You can follow us, Infinite Worlds Magazine. Go to our website. You can find us on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, we sell magazines. You should buy one or the whole collection of them. They're super awesome. Definitely check them out. So good. So good. All right. So that's the end of part two. Hope everybody out there is doing well. We really appreciate you guys being patient with us. It has been a, you know, for all of us, I said it last week, very tumultuous few months um as for myself i just moved out of a uh a condo that uh we lived in for eight years raised our daughter in and uh it's heavy emotionally heavy but uh that's behind me now and so like i said we're ready to uh to to get to regular podcasting i am now at the beach in the van the van is uh I'd say it's about 98% uh, done and I'm about to hit the road and uh, travel up the coast surfing up to uh, all the way up to Canada. So I'm pretty pumped uh, to get that done and we'll be recording the entire time. As for Arc Zero, I uploaded the book um, a couple weeks ago and I realized that, uh, you know, it's a learning process, that it, uh, it will only order the chapters chronologically so i'm gonna have to delete every single chapter and then repost in the order so that the first one you come to is chapter one i think a lot of people listen to chapter three anyways i'll be redoing that uh that's the new task um for the next two days and then we're gonna record another podcast and hopefully drop that uh 
ASAP. Be good to yourselves, be good to others, and we will see you next time. Adios. Our theme song was by Christopher Whitaker, and our podcast graphics were by Sam the Man. And you can find him at monitor underscore studio on Instagram. Adios.